to Sunday sermons and other recordings from the Unitarian Universalist Church of Davis, California. Please visit our website at www.uudavis.org for further information. Everybody, and I'm Beth Banks, the senior minister for this congregation, and I'm Cliff Omart, the worship associate for today. We come together today to honor the universal community of seekers to which we belong. We gather together today to share from our deepest place of safety that we might nurture ourselves by celebrating one another. We call into our presence this hour our ancestors whose love, labor, and commitment made it possible for us to be here now. Let us call one another to the table of abundance, that we may feed on those fruits that sustain us and ever ask us to grow. Let us be open to this moment with heart that have no borders. And come, let us worship together with open hearts. To acknowledge all that is being held by the people in this room, we light one pillar candle for the sorrows in our lives that everyone carries quietly in their hearts. And we light one pillar candle for the joys that also reside in our hearts simultaneously alongside those sorrows. Today, uh, I've asked, taking advantage of Alex being here today, I've asked Alex Hader Winnett to light the chalice for us. The flaming chalice is the symbol of Unitarian Universalism, and it is lit at the beginning of our gathering on Sundays and throughout the week. We light this chalice not simply in the hope that we will be led to wisdom, but for the spark that arises when wisdom is found. We pray for the wisdom that makes us new. We long for the wisdom that reveals the connections between us. We hunger for the wisdom that heals our hearts. May the light we now kindle together lead us back to those wiser ways. And this morning, Ann Kim Trump is going to be doing the message for all ages. She is from the Muslim Davis Dean, which is a um, Muslim... Inter- Muslim um, community, the social group that is very interested in interfaith um, dialogue and activities. So it's um, wonderful to have her here, and she's also going to be helping with a service later in the season about Ramadan. So she's informing us a great deal about that. So let's see. Here we are. Okay, well, good morning. It's great to see you all here. And I um, get the pleasure of telling a story. And I don't want to do this storytelling alone. But let me first tell you a little um, background on the source of this story. So this is a story. It's a a Mullah Nusradin story. So he is a a Sufi philosopher. Um, He's a wise man from the 13th century in Turkey. And he's both wise and funny. And so these stories um, often are um, amusing, but they often have a, uh, a, a, um, a moral at the end, like an Aesop fable. 
So to begin the story, I need some volunteers and hopefully some young volunteers who will help me keep this story moving. So I need people who could volunteer to be a tree. And it to be townspeople. Also, people like that are shorter than Anne's shoulder, let's say, if we can possibly get some. <laughs> Just knowing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. So does anybody want to come up? You can just stand and be a tree. Oh, you can be a little townspeople. Can we see anybody? Okay, we have someone here. Good. Who else do we have? Oh, we got some people down here. These aren't speaking roles, but they're kind of moving roles. So this is pretty good. Anybody else? Okay. Oh, we got someone down here. Yes, excellent. Good, good. So who wants to move? Who wants to move around? You're going to be a mover. You'll be a townsperson. What do you do? You want to stand or do you want to move? You want to be a tree. Excellent. You look like you'd be a great tree. And you look like a mover. Okay. And would you like to be a, a tree or a, a townspeople? A tree. You'll be a tree. And I've got some movers here, so now I need some townspeople. You guys are going to move around. Okay. All right. So we'll begin the story. So one day the mullah discovered that his donkey had disappeared. And this was a, a, a real serious problem because the donkey was his helper. It was his companion. It was the source of his livelihood. It was the source of the town's livelihood. It would bring things in and take things away. And people were very sad to hear that the donkey was gone. So the townspeople all gathered together and they said, we're going to all search for this donkey. So now we have a tree. Tree? Tree? Okay, good tree. Here's a tree. And the townspeople are going to search everywhere. So townspeople, we need to be moving around. We need to be looking behind trees. We need to, maybe somebody wants to be a, a store or a shop and look and say, is he under there? And they looked everywhere, high and low and under places. This donkey was actually really clever. And he was, you know, they they checked all his favorite hiding places. And, wow, we got some good searching there. I mean, if this donkey was to be found, these townspeople would have found him. You see how good they're searching? All right. So the townspeople, at the end of a long day of searching, came back to the mullah. So townspeople come on back. And they came, they were coming back with the sad news that they could not find that donkey anywhere and, and that that donkey was gone for good. And instead of finding the mullah upset, the mullah, or the role I will play, was sitting on the ground in his, on his knees, reaching up to God and saying, Oh, thank you, God. Thank you, God. And the townspeople, they said, what are you grateful for? Your donkey is gone. Our livelihood is gone. And he says, I know, I know, but I have so much to be grateful for. Imagine what could have happened to me had I been on that donkey. <laughs> so that is the silver lining story. Thank you, guys. Good searching. And some great tree action, too. And so we sing the blessing. Wisdom. I really like that word. What comes to mind when I hear it are people that I've encountered through my life. 
my wife, my mother, my brother, or people that I've read about, Abraham Lincoln, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Gandalf from the trilogy. I would like to be considered a wise person. With that, with that thought, I have to ask myself, why do I want to be considered a wise person? Is it because it would help me make friends and influence people? No, I think it's because when I'm wise, I'm being a better, higher self. In fact, I'm getting out of myself and considering other people and other things, too. What is wisdom? One thing that comes to mind is how often I've used the expression, boy, if they were sure wise not to say or do X, Y, or Z. Surely wisdom is more than knowingly avoiding an unfortunate event or an undesirable person. Is it the careful use of my knowledge in a good and fair way? Does that come from the accumulation of experiences and knowing people that I've learned lessons from? Is there a wise way of contemplating wisdom? I decided a helpful approach would be to think about some times in my life when I thought I was wise and what were their outcomes, and in other words, uh, the wise moments of my life. One was the decision to marry my wife, Jerry, my wonderful, amazing wife. We've shared joys and sorrows, adventures both local and far-flung. And sharing is the key word here. Her being with me made all those experiences so much richer. She helped me to learn so much about myself that I was not aware of and inspired me to work on being a better person to myself as well as others. We've raised a wonderful son together, an unbelievably rewarding experience. Another wise moment was when my wife and I decided to quit our jobs in Australia and move back to California after living there for 10 years. It was an excruciating decision to make. We loved it there. We had good jobs and financial security. We had wonderful friends. We had grown to love the eucalyptus forests, the parrots, the cockatoos, and the lorikeets of all the colors of the rainbow. Being alone on gorgeous beaches. However, things just did not feel right to me. It's hard to describe it other than I felt like I had a big hole in my life. We missed our families, the Sierras, the Pacific Coast, the things that make the United States different from other cultures. The process of moving back was very difficult, but shortly after arriving back in California, I felt the hole was gone. The best way to describe how I felt was I felt I was home. Did I know at the time I made those decisions that they were wise ones? I was not thinking of wisdom at those moments. They were decisions that my inner self convinced me I must make. It was only in hindsight that they seemed like wise ones. Because in making them, the experiences that followed required me to get out of myself, to look at who I was, and to work on what I saw. It, they allowed me to recognize what was the most important thing to me and what I valued in life. All in all, I think I am wise in certain circumstances and at other times not so much. But I do think some of my wisdom has come with age, probably because 
With more experiences, time, and contemplation, I am more certain about the things I value and have a better sense of what I consider as right and wrong. I look forward to gaining even more wisdom as the rest of my life unfolds. So Cliff um, was a part of a conversation that our two guests had with me. So the four of us sat around a table, and he was um, formulating in his own mind how he understands wisdom and then had the opportunity to hear from other faith traditions about how they understand wisdom and then to further develop his own, which is what you heard today. Well, good morning again. Um, it's really great to be here, and um, I'm honored really to be able to share with you what is wisdom in the Islamic tradition. The word for wisdom in Arabic, which is what our sacred texts are revealed in, is the word is hikmah. And like many Arabic words, it means more than just one word wisdom. It also means philosophy, rationale, and reason. And it is an important concept in Islamic philosophy and law. And I will try to give this word justice in the short time I have. So hikmah appears in the Quran in different contexts. One aspect is in the encouragement of gaining knowledge. One of the most impactful stories of the Quran is when the Prophet, peace be upon him, received his first revelation from God um, through the angel Gabriel. The Prophet was meditating when the angel Gabriel came to him, squeezed him tight, and said, Read, or Ikra. To which Muhammad replied, But I am not versed, meaning that he couldn't read or write. The revelation continued, Read in the name of your Lord who created, created man out of a clot of congealed blood. Read, and your Lord is the most generous, who taught by the pen, taught man that which he did not know. This verse is full of meaning. At the time of this revelation, there was great ignorance in the area of Arabia where the prophet lived. Few people were literate then. We know that major civilization advances pivoted on some aspect of the pen, whether it be the invention of writing or paper, the printing press, even the personal computer. The pen in any form pretended great societal changes, and such was the case here. With this first revelation, the destiny of the Arabian Peninsula was changed forever. Gaining knowledge is critical for another kind of wisdom in Islam, the wisdom of reason. Reason involves building connections between different kinds of knowledge and is encouraged so we don't just blindly follow what someone says. To answer difficult questions, Muslims look to the Quran and the practice of the Prophet called the Sunnah, as well as scholarly texts. At a very high level, this kind of reasoning is reflected in a process called ijtihad, which in Arabic is a legal term meaning independent reasoning, and is practiced by Muslim jurists and scholars. I'd like to finish with a review of Islam's golden age, what had at its nucleus a center of scholarship in Baghdad, an institute called Beit al-Hikmah, or House of Wisdom. 
The Golden Age began during the Abbasid dynasty around 750 CE. The Abbasid rule spanned Arabia, Persia, North Africa, and Europe and fostered multicultural and multi-faith tolerance that set the stage for the Golden Age. A critical founder of the Golden Age was the ruler Harun al-Rashid, who had a desire for knowledge and funded scholars from all over the world and all religions to come to Beit al-Hikmah. The movement began with vast translations of works from Greek to Arabic. The adaptation of papermaking from the Chinese facilitated great production of books and spread of knowledge. Scholars studied science, medicine, and philosophy. Scholars from Beit al-Hikmah often doubled as engineers and architects, medics, and consultants. From this effort came maps of the world, astronomical observations, chemistry, medicine, and more. The Golden Age began to decline around 847 when the ruling caliphs turned from broad-minded inquiry to more literal religious interpretation and away from science. The Beit al-Hikmah was destroyed with Mongol invasion in 1258 with books thrown into the Tigris in such quantities that the river was said to run black with ink. Though Baghdad fell in 1258, learning continued in other centers in Turkey, Cairo, and Cordoba. The Golden Age of Islam persisted until the 15th century, a period of 700 years. Its decline is multifactorial. From inward-focused leaders, external forces of colonialism, to the Ottomans' reluctance to adopt the printing press. So where does this leave us today? It would be tempting to think that there is a general conservatism in the Muslim world that has put a pall on thinking of wisdom. But that would be a simplistic view that ignores the conservatism that is really sweeping many religions buys into Islamophobic press, and ignores current accomplishments. I will note that as of 2018, 12 Nobel Prize laureates have been Muslim, more than half in the 21st century. Seven of the 12 laureates have been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, while three have been for sciences. In my view, a return to a global age of pursuit of wisdom would require less world power political interference and more world awareness and a desire for all to fund knowledge, not power. The golden age of wisdom was marked by a time of relative tolerance and openness, and that is the wisdom we can all aspire to, which would benefit the entire world. Thank you. So thank you, uh, Beth, for the invitation. Um, and also, thank you to the Unitarians who, uh, about 25, 30 years ago, late 90s, uh, my teacher, Annie Pema Chodron, actually gave a talk somewhere around here. Uh, it's the largest program the Davis Shambhala Center has ever put on in this room. We packed the place. It was fun. And fun being with my teacher, which I don't get to do very often. So thank you for the Unitarians. And also the Quakers. They were very helpful to Shambhala in the early, early days when we did before we had a space. So thank you for that. Wisdom in a very short period of time from the Buddhist perspective. It's a very complicated issue. We spent a lot of time on this. 
and we don't have a lot of time to do this right now, but it's very important. Um, the pith of wisdom from the Buddhist perspective is that this bill exists, but at the same time, this bill does not exist. Okay. In an absolute sense, this does not exist. In a relative sense, it does. These are the two truths we're talking about here. Uh, similarly, this phenomenal world that I'm looking out at exists in a relative sense. But in an absolute sense, not so much. So let's talk about those two premises. When you come into a Buddhist center, very likely you're going to be meditating. The style of meditation that we introduce is something called shamatha. The uh, scientific community would know it as focused attention. We uh, uh, sit comfortably, notice our thoughts, and when we notice a thought, it's only all the time, we gently return our attention to an object of the meditation. Typically, it's the breath. As you know, we never leave home without it. It's always there. Particularly if you're going to be sitting indoors, uh, the breath is a great object of meditation. So we return to that as an anchor. The significance, the importance of this procedure is... As we're sitting, we notice things. We notice that we're thinking all the time. And in fact, these thoughts actually kind of fit into two categories. We might call them the illusion of the past or the fantasy of the future, which is to say they're just thoughts. There's nothing substantial about what's going on, this basis for who I am, my thoughts. There's absolutely no basis for this. There's no origin to this, because the origin is infinite, essentially. So with that, we come to an understanding of egolessness, of self. Similarly, we come to a similar conclusion with respect to other, self versus other. Uh, the metaphor that we used this morning earlier in the first session, it's, it's called the, the movie. We, we're all in a movie right now. And you are all in my movie, and I'm very much in your movie, presumably, because I've got the microphone. I'm very much in your soundtrack right now. Okay. So, but the idea here is that we're not in the same movie. We're sharing something, but because we all come from different situations, I've got 70 years of backlog stuff that I've gone through. Well, that's my, those we call those causes and conditions that bring me to now my movie. You all have your movie, and I'm in it. But if we all have a different movie going on, and if that movie is changing moment to moment to moment, and it's probably changed for all of you since I first introduced the, the term movie, right? So this is, this is infinite permutations of, of things changing. And that the logic here is that if everything is changing all the time, does any of this exist? In an absolute sense, in, an, in a relative sense, definitely. You know, we all got to get along 
we've got, we deal with generosity, and uh, if, you, if you have a handout, uh, if you pick one of these up on the back of um, the announcement for Pema, the book class, we talk about generosity, patience, discipline, joyful exertion. These are the, the, the ways in which we get on in the world, but they're all fundamentally linked to this notion of prajna, or wisdom. And the wisdom is this understanding, this palpable understanding, that we both exist and simultaneously we don't exist. Hmm. I think we're going to cut it off right there. Uh, I will say one thing. The, the wisdom, it comes from books, but it's basically innate. We are born with basic goodness and Buddha nature. And we're not learning so much as we're uncovering what's, what's already there. All right? So if you're confused, uh, I share that. <laughs> so may it dawn as wisdom. I love how you end that. May it dawn as wisdom. May it, uh, I stole that, by the way. It's not my question. <laughs> it could have been yours. You didn't have to say. So I am given the task of coming at wisdom from the perspective of the Unitarian Universalist, and we do really like wisdom a lot. In the beginning, in the very beginning, not the way back beginning, but in the beginning, Unitarianism and Universalism were two separate religions, one having a central belief in one God as opposed to the Trinity, and the other believed that there was a loving God who made no exceptions about who received that love. There's a t-shirt that is worn by some folks in our denomination that says, you are, all are loved, no exceptions. One started in the 1500s, and that was the Unitarian faith, and the other emerged in the 1700s, and that was the Universalist faith, primarily in this country. They were typically from different classes in the United States, the Unitarians being the wealthy, the elite of Boston, and the Universalists having often little education and preaching from the Spirit, in town to town about a God of love. And for the Universalists, again, there was no choice. We were loved whether we wanted to be or not. Imagine that. Whether you wanted to be loved or not, too bad. You are. Through the decades, the differences in theology lessened. The youth programming and the social justice efforts merged. And in 1962, the two denominations consolidated. However, there continued to be differences that challenged an ongoing mutual affection. Some of them were the class differences, but most often theology. And often the Universalists felt that they were consumed by the Unitarians. And there's something called lazy tongue syndrome. Just saying, I'm from the Unitarian Church instead of the Unitarian Universalist Church, leaving out the message of love. And so Gordon McKeeman, who was the president of Star King School for the Ministry, 
also ran to be president of the Unitarian Universalist Association, and he did not uh, get that um, position. And this was not out of spite, but he cared deeply because he was a universalist for generations. And so when the UUA started their joint meetings yearly in June, and someone would say, we are the Unitarian Association, he would always place himself in the very front, and he would hiss. He was really a very gentlemanly person, but this was too much for him. So there were struggles with a mutual affection. Neither denomination had a creed that people were required to believe, but each had something like an affirmation of faith that listed core beliefs that were commonly held. It always said, these beliefs are commonly held, which was a little escape hatch for those who did not believe the same way. In 1960, before the two denominations actually formally legally came together, representatives from the congregations all across the country came together and debated. It went day and night, I understand, trying to agree upon the central beliefs, trying to find a meaningful language, not watered-down language, meaningful language that could include a wide diversity of beliefs held by both denominations. You can imagine the Unitarians wanted more humanist language. The Universalists wanted more God-centered language. One statement was created, but not before it almost stopped the consolidation. And it wasn't until 1984, 24 years later, that the issue was resolved. And that was done by creating the principles and purposes and separating out what we know as the sources. Once again, representatives from our congregations gathered and debated, and that was the result. Principles and purposes and the sources being separated out, described as the touchstones of our decision to proclaim our diversity. That's more the principles and purposes. But the sources, that's more of what holds us together, as well as our covenant. You will think of the principles and purposes as saying, starting with the inherent worth and dignity of every person, and then the seventh being the respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. And that version in the 1980s was brought about because of women and the sexist language that existed in the first version. So here are the sources, and I really want us to think about these as sources of our wisdom. This is where we can draw from for wisdom. And think about them in the time in which we're living right now. Direct experience of that transcending mystery and wonder affirmed in all cultures which moves us to a renewal of the spirit and an openness to the forces that create and uphold life. Words and deeds of prophetic people which challenge us to confront powers and structures of evil with justice, compassion, and the transforming power of love. 
wisdom from the world's religions, which inspires us in our ethical and spiritual life, and thus the reason to have other religious faiths outside of our own represented in this pulpit. But also, this represents our need to go to those faith communities to understand them as well and not assume that they will always come to grace our pulpit. Jewish and Christian teachings which call us to respond to God's love by loving our neighbors as ourselves. Universalist theology right there. Humanist teachings which counsel us to heed the guidance of reason, the results of science, and warn us against idolatries of the mind and spirit. Unitarian faith, right there. Spiritual teachings of earth-centered traditions which celebrate the sacred circle of life and instruct us to live in harmony with the rhythms of nature. Climate crisis. There is the command for us to move forward. But what I love even more is what comes after that, which says that we have a responsibility to enrich and ennoble our lives, to be inspired, to deepen our understanding, to expand our vision, and to give each other our mutual trust and support to realize that there are different ways of finding wisdom in this room. And it is our work to respect the ways that others find wisdom within our own faith. So that is how we are challenged to find wisdom is to use those sources that are available to us. And last week we heard a piece of music from Jason Shelton, and it was a cantata with six movements. And he had said, it cannot be purchased with just movement number one or number two or number three, because each movement represented one of these sources. And he did not want congregations to say, I just like the source of humanism, or I just want the source of Jewish and Christian teachings, that they needed to take the whole spectrum into consideration. And there was only one part of that cantata that was we can purchase alone. And that is the one we did that mentions seven different religious traditions and that is the one that we can purchase alone. So it's important to think about the many different ways we can understand wisdom and to invite those ways into our lives and to do our own search the way Cliff was asked to do his search for this morning. And so we will adjourn to have a little conversation here with you. And Cliff is going to stay on the side over there, but... We will join together just for a few minutes. We were hoping to have a much longer conversation with you, but um, time is of the essence, so 
it'll be brief, but good. Who wants to start? I'm the host, so I'm thinking I won't. Ah, I suppose I should. So you've heard about um, the ways that our denominations or our, our faith, faith traditions um, speak of wisdom, but now how do we live that in our lives? Okay, so uh, I mentioned meditation. There's a lot of that going on in any Buddhist community. And Bill, you probably have to speak up just a little. Yeah, and like an ice cream cone, you said. Yeah. Okay. And um, but we're not doing this to become good little meditators. We're actually trying to to get utilitarian about it. We're trying to develop a skill actually that we can take out into the real world. A situation where somebody rubs us wrong here, or a boss or a housemate, somebody pushes our buttons. Well, I can go into my habitual reaction, whatever that turns out to be, and maybe that's the best reaction, uh, but maybe it's not been so successful. It keeps happening. Right? So perhaps what I could do is remember that skill that I learned on the cushion or in a chair where I'm cutting the momentum of my discursive thought process. I'm interrupting the, the movie. Right? Movies in my day, uh, they're, they're individual frames. Right? That analogy is going to go away. Or pretty, no one's going to understand what that means in, in the digital world, but it still, still works for my, uh, my, my polemic purposes here. So with the, with the focused attention, I'm able to actually interrupt the momentum of the discursive thought process, see it as some discrete moments in a life. I don't actually exist except in these little discrete moments. And maybe I could actually introduce a pause in my situation before I react, giving myself a little distance from whatever it was that provoked me. So I think this is the virtue of uh, meditation, this one style of meditation. There are two or three major flavors, but it's been uh, extremely helpful, I believe. Um, so in my life, um, when we think about Islam, Islam is actually called a way of life, and that could actually sound kind of scarily dogmatic. But what I have appreciated about the religion, and I come to it from a convert perspective, if you haven't guessed that yet, um, but uh, is that everything that we are doing in the um, in the practice have little elements of wisdom that may not be initially and intuitively um, obvious. So like the five prayers a day um, is such um, an interesting aspect. It's not just a moment to sit and glorify God, or, or to, but it's a moment to slow down. It's a moment to redirect what we're doing. It's a moment to take ourselves away from the movie, and um, it kind of recenter. And I lo I've been loving listening to Bill today because it's really a lot about awareness, bringing us to awareness. So these in these practices, I do try to look for what are the other reasons? Why else are we doing that? And that's where I find a lot of wisdom in in living. 
And I've enjoyed hearing both of them. And as I said, that we went out and had a meal together and talked about this before to plan this and to hear each other's perspective. So both the um, love of the intellect um, in wisdom and the pause have been really informative um, for me. But as a Unitarian Universalist, these, these sources were a part of my life since I've been a child. And so I realize that when I need wisdom, which I may or may not find, but hopefully will, I like to look at, um, mul- at multiple resources. So that is very much a part of my life. It's not just one resource. If I choose to just listen to what I think is right in my heart, that could be really false because maybe my perception is very different from others. If I just look at the intellect and reason, maybe that isn't informed well enough. So I need to look at multiple sources to come to a point of wisdom. And maybe I need to sit with discomfort in that, which is the pause, because maybe it isn't all aligned carefully. And I actually need to pray about it, not to say, you know, give me, give me the understanding, but just to allow myself to not make a big decision right away. I need to sit and let things kind of steep like a good tea. And then I can make a more informed decision that isn't hurried, that comes from so many sources. So both one person on one side and one on the other has helped to inform this, but certainly our sources have as well. So the question becomes for you this week, how do you find wisdom in your life that becomes a touchstone so that you feel you're living a meaningful life? So that is what we would leave with you, and I hope that you can identify those ways. And I invite you into a time of prayer and meditation. And many, many thanks to both of our guests, Anne and Bill, and Cliff, not to be forgotten for a second. So this prayer comes out of the pastoral life of this congregation, and I would have you realize that many lives are woven into these words. I invite you just to breathe, to be present, to pause. For those among us whose heart is filled with aching and loss, loss that might be our own or what we carry on behalf of others, may we share our heartaches with others we trust and lighten our own pain. There is healing in the space between our lips and the ears of another trusted friend. May we help create the spirit of healing. For those among us who need understanding and physical care, and we need this from others, but hesitate to ask, may we model for each other the importance of inviting and accepting the kindness of others.
We are ready, ready to become a part of the divine connection that goes beyond words, that goes beyond deeds. and afraid seek what reminds the soul of harmony of the spirit of love that moves in our heart that holds our fears and gives strength It's time for the unique to come and tell us about the offering. Yes, indeed. Here they come. The pulpit is yours. Hi, I'm Davis. This is Carter. That's Anna. That's Caitlin. That's Sarah. Sarah. That's Mark. <laughs> um, what is the Bee Haven? The Hagen Das Honey Bee Haven is a unique outdoor museum where visitors can observe and learn about bees and the plants that support them. Located next to the Harry H. Laidlaw Jr. Honey Bee Research Facility on Bee Biology Road, UC Davis, it was planted in fall 2009 thanks to a generous gift from Hagen Das. The garden is open year-round during daylight hours. Admission is free. 
so if you didn't know, Haagen-Dazs is ice cream. It's an ice cream brand. It's very, very good. Okay. And then, so for this paragraph, anytime you see Caitlin hold up this sign, I'd invite you all to buzz. So let's try it out once. Yeah. Just like that. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Do you like to eat? Thank a bee. Bees are responsible for pollinating about one-third of all the food we eat, including most of the fruits, nuts, and vegetables that make our daily diets tasty and nutritious. Bees also pollinate many of our wild plants that in turn provide food and habitat for other wildlife. <laughs> Yet many bee uh, species, California uh, has about 1,600 native bee species are in decline. While we are, uh, don't know all the reasons why this is occurring, one thing is clear. Bees need flowers. We can all plant bee gardens from a few flower pots to several acres. The Haven is a unique uh, location where visitors can see bees and learn what they do to help. Your donations will go to help us buy items on the Haagen-Dazs Honey Bee Haven Amazon wish list. These items include an eight cubic yards of decomposed granite to refresh their pathways, gift cards to local nurseries to purchase plants, a six foot wide ADA compliant entrance gate. So now we have some fun trivia for anybody. If you are holding a bee, you are you have been randomly selected to be involved in this activity. So <laughs> So our first question is what unique behavior does a bee use to communicate the location of food to other bees in the colony? A places an ad in the paper, B buzzes at them, C performs a dance, or D posts directions on the highway. Dancing? Okay. Perform a dance? Yeah? You are correct. Okay. Our next question is, what does a fertilized bee egg develop into? A, a child, B, a male worker, C, a female worker, or D, a king? D, female worker? Okay. <laughs> If you guessed female worker, you are correct. Okay. Very young bee larvae feed on what type of food? A, nutritious pollen. B, nutritious royal jelly. C, nutritious royal nectar. Or D, nutritious honey. Shout it out, go ahead. Honey. B, royal jelly? Okay, if you guess B, you are correct. 
What does an unfertilized bee egg produce? A male drone? Nothing. A male worker or grandchildren? If you guessed A, male drone, you are correct. This one's pretty hard, okay? So be ready. What is the scientific name of the honeybee? Now, these are all in Latin, and I don't know that, so sorry. Apis mellifera, Papilo macedon, Cosinellidae, Escorpius flavicatus. It is A. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Thank you, everybody. That's all for today. Well, I have the difficult task of following high school students in bee costumes, and I'm one of the last things standing in the way of you and Pi, so I'll try to make this quick. <laughs> Friends, it is an honor and a privilege to serve as your campus minister for the last year and a half. Every Thursday during the academic calendar, we host weekly dinner and conversation and worship. In the years since you have started serving the students of Davis, dozens and dozens and dozens of young adults have been fed and nourished, both physically and spiritually. Our dinners are vegetarian and vegan and free to all who come through the door. Sometimes this is the one home-cooked meal a student will have in the week. If you have ever uh, cooked and or delivered a meal to the students, please raise your hand. Thank you. Thank you. We offer conversations on stress management, study skills, self-care, but also faith development and identity discernment. Not everyone who attends our meetings was raised UU or even identifies as one, but all grow to appreciate UU culture, spirituality, and theology. On top of our weekly meetings, I offer pastoral care and spiritual guidance. As you may know, college is a time of great emotional and spiritual growth. As students leave home and explore new ideas, questions of faith and identity arise. And we, and I mean we, all of us in this community, are there to serve, guide, and counsel. It is a great honor to support the students in their time of need and excitement both. While there are some UU campus communities in the United States, fewer than two dozen in all, I am aware of no others that have the same level of consistency and dedicated staff as here in Davis. All of this dinner, Formation and support are offered free of charge to each and every student. However, it does require the generous time, talent, and treasure of all of you. 
Our meals are organized, cooked, and delivered by you, our lay leaders. And if you're interested in helping out with dinner in spring quarter, you can reach out to Karen Fries on Realm, and she will be uh, setting up the sign-up sheet in just a few weeks. The organizing of the campus ministry is done largely by our campus ministry and intern committee. But most importantly, none of this could happen with the consistency and efficiency it has without your generous pledges. When you pledge, you feel comfortable knowing that your money goes to supporting students at UC Davis through our campus ministry and the interfaith work we do with organizations like the Belfry, Hillel House, Newman Center, and CA House. It goes to caring for our students on Thursday nights, and it goes to training a new generation of young adult UU leaders. Your pledge makes you an honorary member of the campus community. The passwords and badges are coming in the mail later. In the past few weeks, our conversations in the group have been around our shared UU values of direct democracy and activism. We have studied and discussed the issues addressed in the most recent election and made sure that every member who is able to vote did so with confidence. We have also discerned together around the fight for COLA, the cost of living adjustment that has been happening on UC Davis campuses, and some of our members have become very, very involved in that effort. And we've thought about how our faith shares our studies and vice versa. But most importantly, I think, as we were talking this most recent Thursday, one of our students said that she appreciates our community both on Thursday nights and on Sunday mornings because it is the only place where the only thing expected of her is her full authentic self. And I think that's very crucial for what we do. So I hope you see the benefit of the work we do together. Today, after the service, I will be collecting non-perishable snacks and uh, toiletries for the Belfry's Essential Closet, a vital service to the UC Davis community. And there is information in the most recent newsletter on how to give. And finally, we invite you to join us on April 5th as the UU Campus Community leads worship. So please consider us when you fill out your pledge card this stewardship season, and thank you. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you, Alex. We are so lucky to have Alex with us for this second year, this year in his role as a campus minister. So we extinguish one pillar candle for the sorrows of our lives. May they have been diminished by our time together. And we extinguish the pillar candle for joys, hoping that they have been enhanced by our time together. And the chalice. May you have heard some message of wisdom here that you will take with you into this coming week. And under these current health situations, uh, instead of taking hands, we are going to give others meaningful stairs, I guess, let's say. Um, so, let us go out into the world and connect with others. To learn from others and make space for them in our lives. 
Let us be kind, brave, and engage in genuine conversation in order to sustain a caring, inclusive, and compassionate community. And let us all say amen. Amen. amen.